Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning and welcome to this week's installment of Beyond Governance here at 101.9 Higher Time. And yours truly is Nimrod Mbele. As always, I'm delighted to share the space and time with you, beloved listeners of this wonderful show. If you are joining us for the first time, you are most welcome by raising difficult social and economic issues and solicit uh, critical insights through the prism of our enlightened guest. Uh, if you miss any of our previous show or you want to validate my claim, uh, simply visit the website, which is www.hiafm.com and download any podcast and share with us through the social media. Our SMA line, as you know, is 34519. The telegram is 0618951019. And of course, your views and thoughts are most welcome through my Twitter handles, which is at Mbele Nimrod. Before you kickstart the show, it is customary to express gratitude to a producer of the show. On that note, Vusima Singh, I thank you very much uh, for being a co-pilot in navigating uh, the process, which brings nothing but delight in the ears and minds of the listener. Uh, today, we continue to shine spotlight on the rating agency landscape as political leaders in Africa are lamenting prejudicial and unsatisfactory business practices by the likes of Moody, Standard & Poor, and Fitch. To illustrate this point, the current chairperson of African Union, President Marquis Saul of Senegal, have called the creation of a Pan-Africanist credit agency as the current international Credit ratings are proving to be unjust to African countries. Paul was made during his inaugural speech as a chairperson of the AU addressing the 35th summit in Addis Ababa later this, earlier this year. On the same trajectory, the former ambassador to the United Nations, Dr. Arikana Timbori Koa, lamented unequal treatment of African, of African countries by financial institutions such as the World Bank and IMF which used the data from the same rating agencies to prejudice against African countries. In a similar token, the African peer review mechanism, which is the body which supports member states, is equally critical of the rating agencies and advocates for a homegrown agencies. So given the multiplier effect of the rating agents outcomes, it is critical that we engage with these issues to find solutions which advances the continental social and economic imperatives, especially especially in the context of the African Intercontinental Free Trade Agreement, which is capital intensive. Well, of course, uh, in making sense of these minefield, I'm joined by Dr. Sifiso Falala, who is the executive at the Servant Rating Agency, as well as uh, Mr. Ellen McCorkey, who is the chief executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Gentlemen, without any waste of time, welcome to Beyond Governance, and thank you for your time. Thanks very much, uh, Nimrod. Thank you for having us. So thank you, uh, Nimrod, and good morning to your listeners as well. Starting with subtitle, I want to start with um, uh, you, uh, Ellen, because these issues um, have a wide implication on the ecosystem. What is the general view of the South African business and business in general with regards to concerns raised by the different organs of states uh, in Africa vis-à-vis the rating agencies? I think that the, the first thing that needs to, to happen is that we need to have honesty on both sides. You can't throw the baby with the bathwater to the extent that the models, uh, let's put it this way, there's a typical way in which, uh, and I've worked in that particular space and I've met 
with the various ratings agencies over the many years, both in the in the private as well as the public sectors. And I think that we've got to at least acknowledge that we need to all be singing of the same hymn book. And to that particular extent, you are going to always have either logical fallacies or what I would refer to as heuristics and biases that are influenced largely by perspectives because people don't come from exactly the same. No one can ever tell your own story better than you can. Um, So someone is going to always use a lens that is their own lens, generally influenced by their own background and their own environment and their own values. I think that this thing around values comes up all the time, right? So we always want to talk at the level of and understanding because there's a code. So when you look at the, at the typical sovereign ratings model, you'll find that it generally, with most of them, it will pick up on something like four key areas. So the first would generally be structural features of that particular economy. Yeah, And in that, you'd look at things like governance quality. And I'm coming to this particular point to answer your question, but I needed to be very fair and give you a context when I say something, then you have a very clear understanding of why I'm saying what I'm saying. So I'm saying the first one would be structural features where they'd look at things like governance quality. And that's a very important issue. When you say governance quality, what exactly is this that you're referring to? You, f- you follow. A political stability and capacity is one of those things that they would look. And then they'll look at the wealth, maybe, and flexibility of the economy, and then the financial sector risks. All those things have both an objective as well as a subjective element. Because as I said, you're always wearing a frame. That particular frame is influenced by your own values. If, for instance, you believe that the capitalist system ought to be prominent in a society, and whether you think that I'm a socialist, you are always going to give a perspective that is based and influenced largely by your own, as I said, uh, bias. Uh, political or economical, whatever the case might be. One of the other things, for instance, the second thing they would look at is the macro performance and prospe- macroeconomic performance and prospects of that particular uh, economy. And to that extent, everybody else is, is a key stakeholder. In other words, you often hear that people would argue that you shouldn't get bank economists in particular giving you a view of the economy and having a very strong voice in the media. Why? because they tend to speak their own positions. Banks take positions in terms of their derivative instruments, uh, in terms of their hedge instruments, and depending where they sit vis-a-vis the dollar or the gold, the price of gold or the price of platinum, they would tell you that this is something that is actually going to happen. But in the meantime, their own bias is influenced largely by the position that their own organization is actually holding in terms of its own balance sheet or in terms of its own income statement or any of the securities gains and losses that they may actually uh, make profits or lose in terms of losses. So all these things, they come within what you refer to as a frame. But then the third one would be how you look at public finances, you know, fiscal policy, fiscal balance, uh, government debt, debt dynamics. There's a huge debate that is taking place now between those who argue that the modern monetary theorists, these people, are actually influencing income streams largely in favor of the fire sector. You know, the fire sector being the finance, insurance, and real estate sectors, so that most people's disposable income now goes into servicing debt, or people are paying insurance uh, premiums, or people are actually servicing rental by way of where they live, and then quite a number of that, a huge amount of that money disappears into transport 
fundamentally, there isn't a lot of money that is left to buy products and services that are actually going to boil and develop the economy of a particular country. Now, depending which side of the economic theory you sit, you may then say, but South Africa is running its monetary and fiscal policies correctly or not correctly, depending on your own personal bias. So if you're in the banking and insurance industry, which is where most insurance, uh, so most economy, economy commentators would come from, you'd actually favor that bias that says, it's okay to have rate environment that we have now. It's okay for the Reserve Bank to consistently increase in interest rates, even though the economy is actually really doing badly and there's very huge high unemployment figures. So the point I'm making up about all these things is that it always depends on the person that is wearing the particular bias of who they are. At the same time, we all need to understand each other in terms of what is the frame that you're actually using in rating a particular country or rating a particular organization? And therefore, how do we balance the system in such a way that the hegemonistic ideas that say, because I'm in control, because I'm in power, I'm going to set the pace and the code for what every other person needs to be measured on can actually be dealt with. But for you to be able to do that, you know that you want to create this level of, because there's two concepts of hegemony and homogeneity, they create this problem with ratings agencies. Because if you've got hegemony, you've now been very dominant in terms of you're controlling the financial flows, you're controlling the investment. You then want to have homogeneity in terms of creating rules that are universal and standard that ought to apply to everybody else. But these particular rules are based on your own values. They're not based Absolutely. on every other person. Thank you very much for that insight. Uh, uh, quite a number of um, interesting points that you raised. Uh, one I could just pick up um, towards the end is the, the need for a balanced view, given the fact that, you know, if you are hegemonic, it's very controversial, and hence most African countries are lamenting against, against that kind of uh, trajectory. But obviously hegemony, I mean, uh, you know, more, more plural approach is quite plausible. Let me bring in uh, Sifisa here. Based on what um, Ellen has pointed out, I mean, what would you consider as the role of the agencies in the ecosystem, particularly in, in as far as the provision and analysis of uh, information that the markets will rely on? Now, <clears throat> thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mbele. Their role is, is the same. Their role is to inform and influence the direction of investment. We are very certain that Ratings agencies are very influential. For instance, they would sell off government bonds that they have. In other words, reduce investment in various um, states around the, especially the continent, based on uh, ratings um, downgrades. So their their role remains the same. Their role is to give advice um, to to investors. But I think what they don't realize is that over the many, many years, their role, because these companies are old, like Moody's is over 120 years old, over the many, many years that they've been in existence, their role is not just advising investors, but their role is extended and expanded to include affecting the average person on the street, because the decisions that they make at the end of the day, affect the price of petrol, for example, the exchange rate, and then the cost of living. So it's no longer just about investors. And I think the cocoon perception that prevailed that the information they produced, as complex as it might be, even coded in terms of how to interpret the actual rating, 
that it was for the consumption of those that are in the know and not only in the know but also those that have the money to 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 be able to buy the securities in various countries that needs to change i think they need to realize that their power has grown exponentially and in some cases they have more power than sovereign states in the sense that um they are the the, the decisions that they take and they do say from time to time that they're expressing an opinion that their opinions have a significant impact particularly for developing economies so there needs to be a realization of the extended and the expanded context within which they they operate and they are almost unfettered uh, control while at the same time it's not very obvious what assumptions they make i'll give you an example if we have say a strike action or industrial action in in south africa the interpretation of that may not necessarily be the same as a strike action or industrial um uh, action in say the northern part of the united states but the impact of sentiment in terms of having a huge impact um on the rating itself may be disproportional to the actual impact because our economy the way it has developed in our society that industrial um, action may need to be interpreted in a slightly different way so the the i think that the, the role is the same it is to to advise the investors and the sovereigns and the sub sovereigns but at the same time they need to realize that uh, their impact has grown exponentially over the years well, thank you very much for that insight um dr falala um we're going to just take a, take a quick break we'll come back just in a second beyond governance making sense of doing business in south africa is proudly sponsored by plus 94 research the science of decision making hey, welcome back this is beyond governance if you've just joined um i am having a very fascinating conversation with uh, sifiso palala who's an executive at sovereign rating africa um agency as well as uh, alan mokoki who's an executive at the south african chamber of commerce and industry um before we took that uh, break um i just noted few pertinent issues which um sifiso raised one is that the rating agency the big 3 rating agencies um voices have grown exponentially Uh, to a point where in some instances their power or their voice even though the outcome is based on their opinion the opinion uh, sometimes carries so much weight in that uh, it affects on ordinary person with which most of us do agree with that particular issue you've also indicated to us that how uh, messaging is being transmitted um you know in the south is completely different how the message is being uh, transmitted in north for an example you have just given us a practical thought around how industrial action is being interpreted in the south in the continent and north the weighting is going to be disproportionate uh, which brings into the issue that alan raised earlier about perspectives about biases uh, about um, you know all of issues which provide a different projection a trajectory on the outcome of the the rating let me bring you back here ellen i mean surely it looks like it's going to be very difficult or it is difficult for any form of objectivity to a point where there is a common framework around the outcome of any rating if these variables comes to play that you and cpc of eloquently put forward your take on that it is going to be difficult but it can also be easy 
because I think that we have to be masters of our own universe. In other words, we have to be able to take decisive action in respect of how we are seen. Our story belongs to us. The story doesn't belong to other people. And I think that for, for a very, very long time, we've, uh, we've allowed other people to tell our story. You can't be better. There is no person that can be better than Sviso at being Sviso. You know, the experience that Sviso has had in his own life, even if he had a twin brother or sister, would be completely different to that twin that he may have. Nimrod is a unique individual, and there's no person, there's no other Nimrod in the world. You're the only one. And the bare and the greatest contribution you can ever make to the world is being authentic, is being you. Nobody can tell your story better than you can. So for us as Africa, we need to be able to tell our story better uh, because we can. We are the only people who know our story. So I think that we are being interpreted and that creates a problem. And in that particular problem, you are always going to get into the era of cognitive dissonance. You're going to get into heuristics and biases because other people, as I said, the issue of values is very, very principal and very, very fundamental. You can't run away from it because when you say values, you mean I'm going to interpret you through what I believe to be right and wrong. And when you do that and you are not interceding with your own self as an African in terms of how you're interpreted, then you will actually get into trouble. So I think that it's up to us to be decisive in terms of how we are actually seen. It's also up to us to be alert more than anything else. I remember at some stage, one of the ratings agencies came to interview me a couple of years back and we were discussing this whole issue around, I think it was the former president was still uh, uh, around at the time, Zuma violating the constitution of South Africa, etc. Why didn't he step down? And I was asking this particular interviewer whether he was aware, because at the time Obama was still the president of the United States, whether he was aware that Obama had actually violated the U.S. Constitution more than 13 times, was even called uh, to order by the Supreme Court uh, in the United States. And why is it that when he, Obama, was violating the 13 times, we were not actually told that the United States was an, an unstable uh, democracy that should not be invested in? But when Zuma was doing exactly the same thing, less times than Obama, we were actually told that South Africa is now a very risky place. These are some of the things that we need to be able to interpret ourselves, not to allow other people to interpret uh, those things for us. So that's just a small little example, but it happens so many times. The other piece related largely to we ourselves as South Africans are the best people. You know, they say that with friends like this, with friends like this who needs enemies. There is no one in the world who, who speaks badly about South Africans themselves. I'll give another example. <laughs> if you want to check what who is the most recognized, credible organization that looks and tracks corruption throughout the world, that has got to be Transparency International. They produce this report every year called the, the, the Corruption Perception Index. Did you know that when you look at the Corruption Perception Index and you simply compare South Africa with our own family, which is BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, did you know that South Africa is the least corrupt of those five countries? But who's going to tell you that? But when you read these ratings reports and you read everything, what you're going to hear is that South Africa is very corrupt. And it doesn't actually help when you have leaders from South Africa, both in the private as well as the public sector, including the very president of South Africa, taking an international investment stage to say country is captured. I'm saying these things because these are all issues that are driving perception and perception gets itself into those particular reports. So when you say the frame, what is the frame? Not that you're supporting corruption, 
I'm saying India and China are far more corrupt than South Africa, yet they're driving economic development and growth at rates of 5 to 7%. But no one is going to tell that particular story unless we as South Africans and Africans are actually telling the story. Not to justify corruption, we've got to deal with state capture, we've got to deal with corruption and eliminate it completely. But when we speak, we must have the context. Elsewhere in the world, in Europe, these things are called kleptocracy. Business has always tried to control the government all over the world. So it's not, South Africans are not special. There's nothing special about us. So that's why we need to bring the balance in this conversation so that it's contextual. We understand. So when someone says, I'm sitting in New York, I'm running this huge wealth fund that belongs to the California pension, uh, teacher's pension fund, I've got 10 trillion. Should I invest in South Africa or not? That we are able to tell our story that please do not say what different because these are the facts that are presenting themselves in South Africa and don't say things that are biased uh, because you're actually going to get away with murder and then, then we don't get the money. And ourselves as South Africans, we start believing those things. We regurgitate basically the bias that's coming from other people. Not that we don't have problems, we have to fix those problems. So I'm not arguing for sweeping things under the carpet at all. In interesting observation that you've just made there, and I just hope, um, um, you know, South African institution, particularly media, heeds these kinds of issues for we often shoot ourselves on the foot by assuming that we are the outliers, whereas we are pretty much the same across the board. But let me take this, the same uh, point for us with Sefiso. Um, I, I suppose the question should be, what should be the, the credit agency's you know, changes in their methodology? Because you are moving into a space which is highly contested, a space that has history. The kind of nuance that you bring into the fore uh, and, and and what would what would you cost what would that be in as far as making you better uh, in a, in a continent? Yeah, um, thank you so much. Fascinated by what Alan was saying there, and uh, I was just imagining um, what would have happened if we were to say invade a country like Libya and depose its its leader, execute the leader, and maybe even say go and have a war in Af Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm just wondering what our, our ratings would look like if we were to do that, because there are some countries that have done exactly that, but the downgrades haven't been we experienced, for example, for something like uh, a July riot that, that we had last year. Yeah, so in terms of just the competitiveness, we don't consider the uh, big three to be highly competitive in terms of their models, because Statistical or scientific modeling is based on various uh, data points and data assumptions. Um, I think at the beginning, we were told that you have uh, structural assumptions about the economy, governance, infrastructure, the labor force, and, and so many other things, and the cost of living, uh, GDP, GDP per capita, uh, sovereign debt, and all of which is which we know is uh, you know the balance of payments account. There are so many things we can't go into all of them in a program of this length, but be that as it may, they are not competitive in, in terms of that, that space because uh, any person with experience in modeling will be able to develop maybe a better model, particularly if they have more informed assumptions about the impact of certain uh, decisions that, that they make and the, the impact of certain assumptions that they also make. So we believe that their competitiveness resides not only in the fact that um, they are accepted as a as a prism for investment that uh, you have to use them. I think Warren Buffett in 
I have to use them. And, uh, you know, he even went on to say that if I could get a, a cheaper, better alternative, I would, but I can't. So they, they themselves, I think, are pretty aware of the fact that they are not very competitive technically, but they are competitive because they've been there in the case of Moody's um, over 100 years. Um, so the competitive advantage really resides with what um, has been suggested in this meeting, particularly from a developing and emerging market point of view, being um, sold to the idea of uh, telling our own story. And, and what does telling our own story actually mean? You will have noticed quietly that um, in South Africa, a lot of decision makers, including those that are in big business, particularly those that run multinationals, are by and large inside and looking out. They're inside South Africa, but looking out. And, and that attitude is tended to uh, infiltrate the entire economy, even on social networks where anything that is um, external, anything that is American, anything that is European is better by default. Whereas in this case, this is actually self-damaging. And I think once you realize that the name itself, sovereign, suggests that there is a form of independence, because a sovereign state means that it is a state that should not be interfered with. It's a state that should run its own affairs. Whereas with sovereign ratings, there's nothing sovereign about them because they are completely interfered with, they are completely external, and they are based on models. And we have our own models in this country, not just in, in financial markets, but in other forms of research that, 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 that are done in this country. So it is, it is changing that story. And uh, what is the result of us being inside looking out? The result of that is we become dependent and financially, we have become subservient to these decision uh, makers and to how decisions are made. And we cannot get out of that rut because you're fitting into a model that controls the world's finances. And you are fitting in as a subservient person to be told how you should run your own affairs. And, and that's something that is completely unacceptable. And that's something that ourselves as an agency and the business people will have to communicate amongst themselves. When we say we have to be ourselves, tell our story, what does that mean? Focus on debt, for example. I believe, and, and, and there's reason for me to believe that borrowing is actually an African. When, when you sit here with a 4.3 trillion rand uh, debt, and a budget deficit of almost 250 billion. Borrowing, you realize borrowing is actually an African. What is African? What is African is uh, Letsema, Ilima. Letsema, Ilima is African. And we have been chatting right at the beginning of this meeting about the Free Africa trade area, where you realize that one sovereign uh, on the continent is not a applications and you work together and that sovereign is able to achieve its objectives. I think until that dialogue starts to uh, to be had, until African states and leaders start to realize that they are making themselves glorious and building these ivory towers of being subservient to these um, uh, internationally controlled and monitored financial system, nothing is going to change. 
What we are going to do on our part is we're going to provide exceptional economic modeling. We're going to provide exceptional and outstanding analysis and we will communicate it. But whether or not it is going to be used will depend on whether or not we are finally prepared to be inside looking in. Thank you very much for that insight. Very interesting uh, you know, observation that you've made. I mean, perhaps maybe the one that, that stands out is the extent to which uh, you as a new entity are obviously fitting in the dominant model and to be told that given given your sovereignty you don't you don't want to be in a position where you've been dictated on how to behave and uh, drawing a reference again to Letsema does suggest that uh, in unity amongst the continental uh, countries it's it's, imp- it's important uh, as that will drive the agenda as seen by the African Union not so much as seen by the West but having said that, because ecosystem of economies across the globe, let alone in a continent, particularly in a context of the uh, African continental free trade agreement, it does suggest few drivers, and business is one of the biggest drivers. In, in, that would ensure that capital resources that are needed are being governized. But the, the, clearly, we have a lot of barriers that we need to overcome for, for that particular venture to, to, to materialize. Let me just bring in Ellen here. From a business point of view, having, having you know, obviously uh, illustrated or given us a food for thought around issues such as financial stability, macroeconomic prospects of economy, uh, uh, you know, issues around you know quality of governance. What would you consider as key drivers in that would enable the changing of the perception, um, a particularly perception that is self-inflicted, uh, promoting the narrative which is negative by the continent itself and uh, moving forward. I think that, the, you know, the first thing that's unavoidable is, of course, when you are, I spoke earlier on about this idea of hegemony and homogeneity, because you can't avoid that construct, because it isn't the social construct that is, that's the way the thing is actually structured. Hegemony basically means domination and homogeneity means similarity, right? Now, you know how the West got to be in this Western hegemony environment, because after the the so-called period that we refer to as the Enlightenment, it is the Enlightenment that obviously led to the Industrial Revolution, Uh, the scientific revolution first, and then the Industrial Revolution, and then the Information Technology Revolution. And it is that Information Technology Revolution that gives you two things. First, it gives you the, the technology, of mass production and communication and the other side it gives you the technology of destruction so you're using the two technologies to actually dominate basically the world so that you can then have a homogeneous world in terms of the standards and the rules that you would like to impose right so these standards then go into things like how you run a democracy for instance so we say we want you to have multi-party democracy we are not going to actually re- respect too much if you are SYTN and you are run under a monarchy, right? Because we say we've got our own monarchy in the UK, but the monarchy that we have is only one that is uh, almost uh, non-existent in terms of operating the government itself. Yeah, That's a value system. So if you don't have the same value system, I'm not going to give you a rating that is not like my value system. I say you must run a multi-party democracy. I expect you to do so. If you start having... A one-party system, I'm going to say, this is something that is very different. 
So only China and maybe Russia are bucking the trend, and they want to do things very, very different, especially China. They're driving a revolution that is completely different. The communist revolution has never been done in a manner in which the Chinese people have actually been done, but they set their own rules. How are they setting their own rules? It's because they first decided that a meritocracy is always going to be the center at what they do. You can't run, criticize people in the comrades marathon unless you're a marathon runner yourself. So that's the first point. So we, as Africans, need to be able to say, we are going to build the level of competencies and skills amongst ourselves that then allow us to be in the room so we can speak the language, so we can change things. You know, when you try to change, you drive uh, big change and renewal in large systems or large organizations, the immune system of those organizations tends to come out to attack. So you are not actually going to likely going to say, I, I lack the dominance in the first place, but I want to change the rules that are being imposed by those who are actually dominant. Unless you, you yourself put yourself in a position where I speak the same language as you do. So if everybody else went to uh, study a particular uh, technology, you are also in a better position when you've studied that technology to act, disagree with them. Because people don't want to listen to people who, are, who haven't actually uh, understood or studied what they did. The economy is run in two levels. Number one, on top, it's savings. These are all the cash flows that come from our salaries, the monies we pay into banks, the savings, whatever the case might be, and the investments uh, that you make in the fixed deposit accounts, whatever the case might be. At the bottom of that, of that line is investments. Investments meaning these the money that comes from the savings on top must be deployed into investments. The point that uh, Swiso was talking about earlier on in terms of uh, you are driving attraction of investment because that investment must go into either equities or it must go into debt so that it can fuel and finance the economy. But in the middle, in terms of the decision maker, are intermediaries. Those intermediaries include people who are banks, CFOs, actuaries, and, 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 and all those people who are driving the projects where they want to take the money that's sitting in the, invest, in the savings in banks and actually deploy it into those investments. It is not a democratic process. So your question is very important. The economy is run by probably five professions. It's the accountants, the chartered accountants, because they are CFOs of organizations, so they decide where money should be invested or not invested, how it's calculated, whether companies are making profits or losses, whether we should actually buy more plant or equipment or employ more people or retrench people. It's the actuaries who are working in wealth companies or insurance companies who calculate the risk and therefore in a position to determine whether that particular big cash flow that's sitting in that organization should be deployed where and how. It's the bankers you know, the world where I came from, I grew up in, who decide whether when you bring a project to the organization, it should actually be financed uh, or not. The engineers who themselves, whether they're digging minerals from the ground or building a bridge or running a power system or building plant and equipment, they are actually the people who drive the manufacturing and the industrialization of anything. And then the economists, of course, who then say, well, the, the environment exists, which is very nice for us to invest. Uh, well, my friends, the lawyers, they always complain. I don't come to them. I say, oh, don't worry, guys. You get instructed by all these five. But the point that you're raising is that if we don't have skills in these five areas, right, we're not going to be decision makers to change these rules that we're all talking about now. So until we've got critical mass in these particular professions, ourselves as black people in South Africa or in the rest of Africa, we're not going to be allowed to get into the room because when you disagree with people who say I've got skills that you don't have, you are always going to be at the disadvantage. It's as though you don't want to learn what you need to learn, 
but you want to disagree that those who've actually learned the thing are actually wrong. First, no. If you are a chartered accountant like other chartered accountants, then you're able to say, but these rules in chartered accountancy that we're applying here don't apply here and they are actually wrong. So let me leave it here for now. <laughs> Very interesting process there for, for a while. We're going to take a break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back uh, to Beyond Governance. We're having fascinating and thought-provoking conversations with my guests in the name of Dr. Sifisa Falala, who is the Chief Executive at Sovereign Africa Rating Agency. I'm also joined by uh, Alan McCork, who is an Executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Before we went to the break, I mean, Alan was giving us very interesting observations as to the changing landscape in the rating agencies. What are the critical success conditions? One of them Obviously, it is that of um, skills and competencies for us to compete. So he puts for us to compete or even questions, methodologies that have been deployed. We need to be competent in those particular space. One of those days when rhetoric used to be, you know, uh, something that people just be blown over by. It is very important that we build sufficient skills and competencies in order to avoid or navigate the hegemony which has been imposed on us. I mean, he made a very classical example as to why China and Russia are revolutionizing the system as it were, purely because they are investing in critical spaces, engineering, financial capital, and so on and so forth. These are spaces which we all need to be focusing on for us to be competitive. That's very clear. I mean, I cannot argue with an engineer unless I'm an engineer. I cannot argue with a financial model unless I'm in a particular space. So that's one thing that we really need for the African Intercontinental Free Trade Agreement to be success. But that is also going to be underpinned by the regulatory regimes. At this point, the hegemony that Ellen has spoken about, which I want to bring in Sifiso here, is purely because we do not have sufficient regulatory environment in the continent that, that is sufficiently attuned to sustainable development. Your take on that and how you want to change that particular landscape what we want to change is to bring some success. As I said, the, the ratings agencies that are used by, by, by default um, uh, as, as, as monopolies or, or oligopolies are, are, have weaknesses in the sense that they cannot change their, their, their habits. And, and one of the things that they need to change is to have some success stories. Uh, not a lot gets told about what the success stories are of of credit rating agencies are because um, there there are none. Perhaps they could claim they could claim that they've saved investors a lot of money, but what have they done for the sovereigns that that they they rate in Africa? As things stand, about thirty uh, more than half of them. And if you look at what has been said about credit ratings agencies, for example, how do you take a place like Greece, for example, to move from an A grading to a D overnight? What does that say about the performance of those credit ratings and, and, and where is the success therein? So in Africa right now, there needs to be a realization, and this is what we are trying to change, that there are no success stories of credit ratings agencies. None. There are no success stories. And part of the evolution of going forward is that we want an Africa that is dynamic, an Africa that is economically successful, that is in tune with its resources, that is very objective and realistic about the 
problems that it, it faces, especially the extent of external de debt, budget deficits, and the balance of, uh, of payments uh, situation that it has, which is negative in most instances. So to that extent, we, we need a credit rating agency that not only diagnoses, diagnoses the situation, diagnostics are important, but also you need to have a curative effect in terms of how you report your, your outcomes. The, the reporting needs to be curative. So over the past, since the 1960s that African states became independent, credit ratings agencies have been a total and shocking failure. They have not done anything for Africa. And, and our position and our view is that they might be serving the interests of the investor, but because of the impact that they have on citizens and the people in the world and the African economy and even economic stability and political stability, their role needs to be uh, um, relooked, and this is the kind of um, lens that we, we we are going to be wearing. So there are no successes to report, and we need our own. Success is not going to be engineered from outside; it's going to have to be engineered from inside. We need to invest in ourselves, and we need to realize that we shouldn't keep penalizing ourselves as we have been doing. There are effects that are a result of the history of the country, the history of the continent that we need to deal with. An example, and, and, and many people never actually focus or think about this, corruption is not an African concept. It is not, it's an African, it's not something that exists. That's why even when we talk about corruption, and I mentioned that because it comes into the state capture, it comes into the ratings. I mentioned this because Africans, if we look at ourselves and reinvent ourselves the way we were before in terms of our value systems, we were not and have never been corrupted. That's why we are the backbone of different faiths, whether it's Muslim, Islam, or Christianity, we are the backbone because of the values that are espoused in different religions. We have a lot of foreign um, uh, forays that have come in and disturbed the, the, the balance within the African society. So we need to be re-looking and in reinvesting in ourselves. We have the tools, we have statisticians, we have economists, we have people that are able to produce the results that are needed. But the audience needs to be available. The problem is when you are in South Africa talking to people in South Africa, the problem is availability of audience. And that's something that uh, media, I think, needs to, to attend to uh, because it is the media that actually exposes and promotes and advertises the global ratings um, agencies. It is they that communicate um, the, the results, uh, ostensibly because of the impact that they have on the economy. I'll stop there for now. Thank you very much for that insight. Uh, food for thought. Uh, well, he, I mean, according to Cifiso, we um, rating agencies make no pronouncements of the success stories. Um, and he also going to say that the, the diagnostic which they undertake are quite useful. However, they're not curative, which means they're not, they don't provide remedies on some of these issues. And he also going to suggest that, um, you know, uh, the last point being non-availability of the audience, which is often pumped up or rammed up by media, is one big uh, missing gap. No table those issues. Well, yes, you, you know, part of the problem, of course, is that uh, uh, by their own mandates, they are not there to find solutions uh, for us. And by their own mandates, it's like, uh, you know, I think one uh, newspaper editor 
at some stage, he was being asked a question about why it is that he was carrying very negative stories about the, the instability of the South African government and, and all these things that were, were, were taking place. And he said, well, you know, you need to be able to appreciate and understand that when I write, uh, he was talking about the ruling party at the time, he says, when I write all these uh, negative stories about the ruling party, it is because the information that I am uh, 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 writing about is being given to me by the very same senior leaders of the same ruling party when they are fighting against each other. Uh, and that's a very important point to make because I said earlier on that South Africans themselves, yeah, South Africa is, a, is an extremely polarized country, number one. And number two, we're a very divided country. And to the extent of whether you look at the media, you look at uh, other uh, social platforms, we, we don't necessarily promote the, the values of, uh, of harmony, the values of compassion, the values of peace and, and, and love. There's too much anger, there's too much acrimony, there's too much hostility in the way in which we engage with each other and in the way in which we project. So people from outside, they come in and, and what do they find? They find peace and you look at these Americans, they can fight and fight, but when it comes to America, they are united on being Americans. Whether they're Republicans or Democrats, when they face the world, they never face the world as, as Republicans or Democrats. They face, face the world as Americans. The British face the world as British. They don't face the world as la Labour or Conservatives or Tories or whatever the case might be. And I think that that's the missing, uh, or, or, or what, what I shall call the big lacuna in the social contract in South Africa. South Africa is a very contested environment. And to that extent, people are unaware or they, they lack the awareness to actually appreciate watching themselves in terms of the things that they do and the, the things that they say. The people who are more damaging to South Africa are the same people who are actually in leadership positions in South Africa. They are the ones when they fight with each other, they then start to say how terrible this place South Africa actually is. Now the ratings agencies can only do what they can only report what we ourselves are telling them. One of the ratings agents, people actually told me at some stages that he found himself in an odd position where he was trying to defend South Africa when one of our own top business were actually destroying the country, taking it apart into pieces and saying all these terrible negative things. Not that we mustn't tell the truth, but I think that we ought to be exercising caution in terms of how we solve the problems in South Africa and how we bad mouth ourselves. Because as I said earlier on in the example of Transparency International and the and the transparency and the and the and the and the and the and the, and the corruption perception index, you will hardly ever hear any senior cabinet minister in China or, or Xi Jinping himself taking any international stage to tell you how corrupt China actually is. Neither will you hear Narendra Modi Modi uh, from India. Uh, telling the world that India is such a corrupt place. Uh, neither will you hear uh, Vladimir Putin saying something like that. Yet all those places are more corrupt than we are. And the point that I'm bringing is that we as South Africans ourselves, we give, we, we pour uh, the, the oil on raging fires in the manner in which we, we, we converse with each other. Hardly you can open a media outlet in South Africa, whether it's radio, whether it's TV. It seems like bad news is the one that sells and, and everyone else is on a, a bandwagon. There's nothing positive that we're saying about ourselves. There's nothing positive that we say about anything. So in, in a sense, I think that we have to deal with that, the psychology of the place and the fact that we get into this, what psychologists, what, what both cognitive and behavioral psychologists call thought pressure. When you're trying to deal with too many things all at the same time and you 
you move from cognitive dissonance into cognitive fog because you don't really know who you are, what is your identity, what exactly are the values that we want to promote. We love the Springboks only when they win, only when they win. Let them lose. Who? You don't want to hear. So Absolutely. we are South Africans, and I think that we need to fix that particular problem because we can't expect other people to come and speak nicely about us when every time when we have, I, I, I always told the story of when I was growing up in the township and there used to be a man three, four houses away from my parents' house. And every time that he was drunk in December, he got his bonus. He would have a, a big kumba kumba, uh, those big speakers outside of his house and there would be a big party there all the time. And then invariably people start fighting there. And then he would be chasing family members and wanting to break his own house. If he take bricks and uh, axes and break his own house and break the windows because he's trying to get rid of people out of his house. And when the winters come, he doesn't have money to fix those windows. And that's us, South Africans. Very interesting metaphor, which um, um, gets to one expression which was introduced by one of my enlightened friends called Ketan Razorism. Uh, so um, the issue is that uh, which which I want to just unpack that concept, uh, very interesting concept that I've learned uh, from you. Uh, I, I, I must be very honest with you, and and you know you must take credit in that because the issues that Ellen is talking about um, are exactly the same uh, issues that I, I express through that particular uh, expression called or you define as hate and racism. In that people who are in the leadership positions are literally absconding responsibility. They often forget that they are there to take decisions and they often forget that why are they in the first place. Take us through that in a context of your rating agency. So, so we all sort of know what needs to be done, right? We have white papers have been written, PowerPoint presentations have been delivered. Uh, we've had plenaries, we've had subcommittees, we've had meetings. But there's no one to implement. So we then we realized that, OK, we didn't implement. Uh, we have a bigger problem than we had before. So we raise the, 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 the issue again and we have we go through exactly the same problem where there is paralysis. of We analyze it, but little do we realize that one of us, maybe all of us needs to do something. We need to act. Um, on on the problem. So curtain razorism comes from the word um, where you have a curtain razor. For instance, you go to a football stadium, you're going to watch a big match, and then you've got the under 18s or under 16s playing before the main event and boxing as well. The main event is only at midnight, so you watch all the kids. So we sort of can play that role, but we can't finish the job. So that's um, something that um, it, it seems to affect um, us in terms of killing off projects, in terms of getting to the end, in terms of getting results, because we have lots of ideas, but we have no results. Everybody always says these guys, there's always a perception of somebody else other than myself to complete the job. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break as we gravitate towards the end of the show. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back uh, to the last leg of the show. Very fascinating, uh, thought-provoking issues that have that are definitely empowering uh, in uh, you know, this, this glorious morning. 
I am joined by C.P. Safalala, who is an executive at Sovereign Africa Rating Agency, SAR. I'm also joined, uh, joined in by Ellen Mukoku, who is an um, executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. We are unpacking the, the landscape of Sovereign Rating Agency, getting multiple voices, particularly a voice from business, on how they perceive it. So far, we've had really had uh, interesting uh, observations and thoughts uh, being shared by, by our colleagues here. Um, as we, we we gravitate towards the you know the last literally two two to three minutes of our conversation, let me start off with um, Ellen. Your parting shot in the context of how to reposition the continent to advance issues raised in the um, in in the Africa Inter Intercontinental Free Free Trade Agreement um, using the rating agencies such as that. Of such such as that um, of of the sovereign rating agency that has been recently established. Your take on that, please. Yeah, so you know, just like I, I said earlier on, first we we've got to be able to understand the rules uh, of engagement uh, by having the skills and the competences because you are not going to be listened to anyone. As I said, you want to criticize marathon runners, you need to be a marathon runner yourself, and then you can then say, let's make changes to the comrades. We need to change this route and the other route. So until we get to that point where we're proper bankers, we're proper accountants, we're proper actuaries, because those are the codified skills, uh, the technologies that other people are applying, we we work on that first. Because it's not a it's not a five year program, it's not a three year program, it's a fifty year, hundred year program, and that's what actually is going to happen. The people that have developed, that have moved their economies from developed to developed economies. In the last hundred years, the non-Western countries, we've discussed this before, you know, uh, you, you know, countries like Japan, you know, uh, Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, uh, Australia, Israel, and yes, Russia. They actually made sure that in the human development index, they would be very, very competitive in terms of building those skills, competences, and having the right culture and values to drive that level of development. Because that's very critical in being able to say we have the science as well. We can't allow other people to be dominant in terms of being the only people who know the science. You can't respond to science with mythology and mysticism. You've got to say, I'm studying the science. We've got the PhDs that we also need to have that every other person has. Everybody else has gone to the same schools. Because when you have that, you have that, those level of skills. Only then can you change the rules of the engagement. You can change the rules of the game. In the meantime, we also need to build a, 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 an, an African consciousness about ourselves. You know, in other words, we need to bring back the, uh, the black consciousness love that uh, uh, Steve Biko was talking about of being conscious of who we are. And just because you're conscious of who you are doesn't mean you hate other people. It doesn't mean you're anti other people just because you want to be pro-black. Being pro-black ain't got nothing to do with being pro, uh, with being anti-white. Being pro-African has got nothing to do with being anti-European. It is not true. So you need to be able to understand that so that we understand how we communicate and then it will bring an element of truth in our engagement. So we note and understand the subliminal messages where you are undermined purely because of who you are, not because of what you are saying. And these things happen and we do them to each other as well, where we have a perception. Uh, I, I, when I was in banking, I would tell the executive committee members were generally mostly black. And I would say, tell me something. I want to ask you a question. If a black entrepreneur walks into this bank and they're applying for 300 million rand worth of a loan and they walk alone, would you give them the money? And I don't want you to answer the question. 
And the reason I, I, I prevented them from answering the question is because I wanted them to think about the question. Because that's a question that you and I uh, need to think about. Are we ourselves undermining ourselves because of the psychology that has made people to have lack of self-belief and lack of self-confidence in themselves? And you are not going to escape this thing because the history of both colonialism and apartheid has actually undermined the psychology of self-confidence, of people's perception of themselves in terms of how they view themselves. Long before you want other people to respect you, you need to be able to respect yourself. So we need to stop undermining ourselves as Africans. And that goes for white people in South Africa as well. We have very, very low self-confidence, by the way, when they compare themselves with other Europeans who are outside of Africa. And we need to deal with that issue of making sure that we can build that level of confidence, we can free people up psychologically so that they know that there's nothing that they cannot be able to do in the world. Thank you very much for that. Uh, one, one way of um, redeeming the continent is through sovereign rating agency as represented by uh, Dr. Sifiso Falala uh, in his capacity as the group CEO. Um, Dr. Falala, your parting shot on this very mindful issue, given the complexity of the landscape that you that you have just ventured into. Your parting shot, please. We need fiscal discipline, and 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 where austerity measures have been recommended, uh, we need to be very frugal. We can't spend money that uh, we can't we don't have. We're basically living above our means, and hence the ratings that 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 we are getting. But there there is more to it than meets the eye. And that will be part of what will be contained in our report later on this month. We, we, we are doing a sovereign rating of South Africa and we'll be releasing our report later on this month. Um, just generally to every person in, in business in, in South Africa and in government, we need to get rid of the cultural wilderness where we find ourselves in. As I mentioned earlier, corruption is not part of the African culture. African culture is very sophisticated and, and dignified. That's why we even call it e-corruption. There are words for it, but but they are, they are longer and it's more words, but e-corruption because it's a foreign, it's a foreign uh, concept. And the other thing is that even borrowing itself, we need to replace uh, borrowing with, uh, let's see, let me stop there. Thank you very much. How if we had more time to unpack some of these uh, uh, brilliant issues, but nevertheless, thank you very much for, for both coming through. We wish you all the best moving forward. Thank you, Nimrod, and thank you, uh, uh, Sviso. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alan. Brilliant. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mbele. Most, most indeed. There you are. With that was a very robust engagement we've had with uh, Dr. Sipiso Falala in his capacity as the CEO at the Sovereign Rating Agency, as well as Mr. Alan Mokoki in his capacity as the Chief Executive at the uh, South African Chamber of Commerce in Industry, Saki. Gentlemen, we're going to have to put it here. Um, let's do this again next week. Shalom. <laughs>